By the early 90s, the slasher trend of the 80s had died down, thanks to an awful formulaic cash grab of sequels studios were producing with no real stories or likable characters. I would also argue that it's because of the 80s that horror has, until just recently, um, such a bad reputation. Uh, police procedurals like Silence of the Lambs and Seven kept the horror genre at bay, while erotic thrillers like Basic Instinct continued pushing horror as a discreditable genre in the 90s. Um, however, in 1996, Master of Horror Wes Craven returned with not just a new movie, but a new franchise that would shape what we would come to recognize as the epitome of the 90s. And all that in just the last few years of the decade. A movie that was tentatively titled Scary Movie, which ended up being a very different movie a few years later. Um, but no, we're talking about a movie we know today as Scream. Thanks for tuning in to Drive Home Movies, a film analysis and movie review podcast where we take a look at the newest releases through, by default, a queer lens. This is your host, Sumner Mormenio, and as that intro stated, today we're going to take a look back at the history of the Scream franchise, its impact, and frankly, why it's one of the best fucking horror movies ever made, and why it matters so much. And why? Why all of this? Because we get Scream 5 in just a couple weeks. Or uh, better known uh, by its proper title, Scream. <laughs> why is it called Scream? Uh, we'll get into that later, along with a couple other of my heart-wrenching predictions that I'm really, really hoping I'm wrong about. Before I get started, I have a quick Corrections Corner. Um, <laughs> I was very heated in my first episode, or last real episode, uh, where I talked about West Side Story. And like I said in the trailer episode, I'm still very new to this. And at uh, times I'll go off on a rant. And my roommate and best friend pointed out to me that I used a made-up word. I said prejudism. <laughs> Uh, a, a few times, um, which isn't a real word. I don't think I've actually said prejudice uh, in real life. Even now, saying it out loud sounds weird. So apologies for the, um, the misuse of grammar there. I also realized I said fuck like a lot. Again, I was heated, but... I also think in my rant, just saying fuck and, uh, you know, I said you know a lot too, is this, uh, I guess, a, a sort of nervous tick. And um, as I get more comfortable, um, it's something I'm going to be working on. But for those who listened, I had a lot more, ex um, I had a lot more listeners than I expected. So uh, thank you so much for uh you know, tuning in and listening and, uh, 
you know, it's uh, cliche uh, to hear on podcast, but I'm going to say it too. If you like what you hear, please um, rate, review, and subscribe. Um, again, I'm doing this just for fun. The idea I think now is I'm going to put out an episode every two weeks. And I know I said monthly, but I'm thinking every two weeks. And I want to do this because before I got into Scream 5, I realized that you can't talk about Scream or any Scream sequel without talking about what came before it in the Scream franchise. And that's really for any of the Scream sequels, not just the new one. And you can't talk about Scream without talking about literally the history of horror and um, the history of the slasher film. So I just want to preface here that I, I really tried to hone in on the ideas I wanted to get across and explore and what I thought was important to the Scream movies and Scream as a franchise and, you know, its influence on the history of horror and cinema in general. Um, that being said, in my one episode, I cannot even touch the expansive universe and the ideas and themes and different narratives that go into all of these movies and overarching throughout these movies. Um, and I am first and foremost a podcast listener, so I want to give a shout out and big special thank you to some major influences, um, in the podcasting world when it comes to podcasting about film analysis and movies in general. And um, they are doing brilliant work. And even some of them now even are doing a, a, a spinoff so, uh, podcast solely focusing on Scream leading up to the new movie. That new one, that new podcast is called uh, Hello Sydney. And I first and foremost wanted to... Um, Shout out to Mike Munzer of The Evolution of Horror, my most listened to podcast of the past two or three years. Along with him, I'm a big fan of uh, Anna Bugatskaya and Libby Howe in The Final Girls. And then, um, again, uh, I'm also a big fan of Andrea Subasati and Alexandra West from uh, Rumor Magazine, and they also host the podcast Faculty of Horror. So if you're looking to do a deeper dive into Scream, God, I wish I could, and maybe one day I will, but I'm, I, again, I'm going to be talking about what's important to me or things that stick out to me, but they are doing real expansive, in-depth analysis into the Scream movies. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to recommend them if you want to know more. If not, here's my like 30-40 minute rundown of the Scream franchise. But to start off with the history of Scream, you really have to look at what came before it. I picture this lineage in my head when I think of Scream. Um, in this lineage... I relate best to an analogy that I weirdly relate to music. I think of the Beatles in the 60s. And the Beatles lent so much to David Bowie in the 70s. 
And then David Bowie lent so much to Nirvana and Kurt Cobain in the 90s. And in a weird way, that's how I think of Scream. Um, I think of the 60s and I think of Psycho. And then I think of Halloween in the 70s or late 70s. And uh, then then, uh, I think of Scream in the 90s. And there can't be one without the one before it. Sure, you can argue that Peeping Tom technically came out before Psycho, and then Black Christmas technically came out before Halloween, but the impact and what would become to be known as the first slasher movie, followed by the first slasher movie with the slasher formula, is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, and then John Carpenter's Halloween. But there is one missing in between those and Scream that many people don't realize. And that's a movie by Wes Craven himself. And that is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. A Nightmare on Elm Street was a successful and good movie made in the wake of a response to Carpenter's Halloween. However, as with most other slashers, he felt... Uh, Wes Craven felt um, that his original movie was tarnished by a slew of cheap sequels and turned his antagonist into a joke, and he wanted nothing to do with it. So, in 94, Craven sought to reclaim his horror masterpiece by creating a sequel that didn't acknowledge itself as a sequel. It did, however, acknowledge itself as a sequel in the movie itself? Uh, confusing, maybe, but also, yes. This was Craven's first take on a meta-narrative where the film was aware it was a film in a literal synopsis as opposed to Scream. Craven's new Nightmare saw the cast of Nightmare on set and creating a new Nightmare movie when supernatural things began to take place and the real spirit of Freddy Krueger began to wreak havoc. Was the movie successful? Uh, It wasn't the most popular Nightmare sequel, no, but I think Craven, he needed to make this movie to get to Scream. I think of New Nightmare as a sketch or an exercise in preparation to create such a complex and meta movie like Scream and be able to make Scream with the ability uh, to, to make it look so easy to do. From the start, Scream was always a very full cast, not just a star-studded movie, but characters that mattered and had depth, and this is where we get into what made Scream different. First off, there's the infamous casting of Drew Barrymore. The story is probably beaten to death, but I love it so much, so I'm repeating it just in case for uh, anyone who doesn't know about it. We're moving back in time to 1960. Alfred Hitchcock is near the end of his successful career, already a legendary filmmaker. Was he a good guy? Uh, That's a topic for another podcast. Janet Leigh is cast as Marion Crane, the leading lady for Psycho the final girl before there was a final girl. The thing is, she's not the final girl. The final girl wouldn't come until years later, really, because Hitchcock one-upped his own career with a twist ending by 
killing off his leading star 47 minutes into the movie. Lead actor dies not even halfway into the movie. Boom, time machine, back to 96, Wes Craven, last house on the left, the hills, have eyes, nightmare on Elm Street, people under the stairs. He's made it, he did the thing. Drew Barrymore is cast as the leading lady, as the final girl, thanks Halloween for that, in his newest movie. Only Drew Barrymore doesn't actually take the part of the final girl. The movie was only advertised that way. Barrymore just had the biggest name. You know, she was the biggest actress um, to be cast in the movie. So she was put front and center of all the advertising material, every trailer. So how could they kill her off 10 minutes into the movie? Literally one scene into the movie and they already fucked up Alfred Hitchcock's psycho on over its head. Other than some Freudian mommy issues with the killer that we'll get into, uh, the movie then shifts away from its psycho references and focuses primarily on taking jabs at Halloween, the movie most regard as the slasher that instilled the rules. But the slasher framework they fuck with the whole time references to a whole bunch of other horror and slasher tropes. And that's what makes Scream like a... A horror nerd's, like, wet dream. (laughs) The amount of Easter eggs and references to other horror movies makes Scream into a sort of love letter to horror as well. And after a decade or so of, let's say, not the best horror, Scream re-emerged as this voice saying, no, it's still awesome, and if you don't think so, here are some movies you need to go back and fucking watch. Most importantly, though, we have Sydney, our true final girl. Before I really get into the importance of Sydney on a grand scale, I must point this out. There's Freddy, Jason, of course, Michael Myers, and uh, Chucky, whoever else. What do these all have in common? Well, they have two things in common. First thing being that they're all the star of their franchises. They're the constant in each film, give or take a couple. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch is a great fucking movie. Second thing being, they all have shitty sequels at one point, which not only gives horror a bad name, but rightfully so, it drives their franchises to shit. I mean, Jesus Christ, Jason X took place in space. What Scream does differently is this. It focuses on a character you feel for. You get to know the character of Sydney more and more with each installment, therefore making us more invested with each sequel. Sure, there are new characters introduced each film, many to be just killed off, but they each play an important role as to an entirely disposable cast like those in uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, which uh, 10 out of 10 do not recommend. Back to Sydney, though, and why her significance is so important. And here is where I want to include an excerpt of my own opinion on history and art. And I guess art history and why art history and art is so important. Um, We can open a textbook and learn uh, the dates of a war and who is involved in a war and why and 
any any day of the week. And we do for so many years in grade school. It's not until you learn about art history when you really get into how people felt and what people were reacting to and how they were reacting to at the time of whatever event or thing took place. It was understood until it wasn't that history was taught so it wouldn't repeat itself. But of course we know, especially now, that it does repeat itself. When we get into art history, though, we see how the people reacted. We see how people felt and which people were fighting for which side and why. And that brings me to third wave feminism. Third wave feminism was flourishing by the early 90s and began redefining what it means to be a woman, uh, began looking at gender politics and LGBTQ plus issues and also started to reassess in general a woman's role in society. And if you're thinking this sounds punk as fuck, you're absolutely right. Bands like Bikini Kill and Jack Off Jill emerged during this time and would inspire a whole movement of female-fronted punk acts, like notably one of my favorite bands of all time, The Distillers. But like I was saying about the importance of art in art history, this moment in history can be seen rippling through all art forms, including film, and most notably, Scream. We're not sure if we liked Janet Lee in Psycho. Her character was a bit iffy. But we did like her daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis, in Halloween. But did we like her friends? Not really. <laughs> Arguably, but yeah, I'm getting to a point. In Scream, we love Sydney. She is not disposable. And yeah, we like her friends too. They're supportive. And through the trauma Sydney endures prior to the movie and during, her friends stick by her. That's a change-up, but I'd like to point out the biggest change-up of all. Scream is a hard R rating. I think people forget how fucking gory and violent Scream is. And that's where we get the hard R from. However, unlike most other hard R rating slasher movies... There is no nudity, ever. The obvious front and center male gaze in Hitchcock's Psycho in so many of his movies is given the biggest fuck you towards the last act of Scream. Randy, a horror nerd, uh, is going over the rules of surviving a horror movie with his classmates. As he lists each rule, we cut back and forth to a shot of Sydney losing her virginity. A rule that any horror nerd knows, at least prior to this movie, is a big no-no. You die. You have sex, you die. And we think for a minute, oh no, did Sydney fuck up? And then Randy continues, narrating the actions taking place in Carpenter's Halloween. Look, he says, here comes the obligatory tit shot. And we cut from a shot of the sex scene in Halloween to Sydney in a bedroom, removing her shirt, exposing her covered breasts. She's wearing a bra. Where are her tits at? Where is it written that a slasher requires female nudity? Or even that a woman can't have sex without consequences? And that is the best fuck you Scream did.
and in its notorious meta way is saying, I know that I'm supposed to be doing this or what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm not going to do it. At the end, it's revealed that her boyfriend, Billy Loomis, and friend Stu are the killers. And there are so many conversations out there on the homoerotic undercurrents between these two that I don't want to get too into it, but I do, as a gay man, have a couple notes myself. Um, Third wave feminism was also concerned, like I said earlier, with the inclusion. It was actually the first wave of feminism to include LGBTQ plus issues, especially after the AIDS epidemic of the 80s. Um, What feminism is, or feminism in general, is also concerned with is men, gender roles, because men, believe it or not, contrary to preconceived feminist beliefs, they're oppressed too. The depiction of the straight white male rage is placed on such a silver platter here in this movie, and the third one, well, I guess the second one too, um, and it's taking a look at the pressure of upholding that ideal image of the straight white male. Don't show emotion, don't take things too seriously, uh, don't care what people think, don't be effeminate, don't be gay. What happens when these things boil over? What happens if you have a tendency to draw outside one of these lines? As stated earlier, the precedence of the male gaze in the slasher genre is key. Not only specifically the through the lens of the literal camera and the lineup of disposable women, but with the weapon of choice, too. The phallic weapon. The weapon of penetration. And... As far as I'm concerned, we see something new at the end of Scream. For a slasher movie whose uh, antagonist's weapon of choice is a, a knife or a weapon of penetration, that is. And that is two male killers taking turns on each other. Stabbing each other, that is, with a knife. Is this a... Um, um, Is it a metaphor for... I don't know. You fill in the blank. But what we do know is that this idea of a straight white man is upheld by these two the whole movie. Unless they're hidden behind a mask or in a closet wearing a mask. And when they can't take it anymore and they come out as the killer, that is, Only then do we see how much pressure or pain they've been enduring this whole time that we were unaware of, but they were unable to share it or even healthily explore it. Anyways, Scream does go to the box office. Word of mouth builds up. Similar to the portrayal of media in Scream 1, some local news reports on the murder, but it's mainly by word of mouth that any information is carried throughout the movie. Scream steadily built up from a holiday release to the top of the box office weeks and even months later. Production for Scream 2 immediately went underway, and surprise, a year later, it's in the theaters, this time poking at sequels. (laughs) The idea of the sequel, the rules of sequels, uh, unless it's a trilogy, 
then, well, we'll get to that later. But what I find interesting here is writer Kevin Williamson and Craven's portrayal of the media. Here, in the sequel, it's bigger. It's moved from a local network um, or networks and word of mouth to uh, full-blown media frenzies and reporters harassing crime scenes. The introduction of the Stab movie series in the world of Scream introduces another layer of meta and commentary on not only movies, but also another bump up in the media world rankings and perhaps foreshadowing Scream 3 and Scream 3's portrayal of the media, almost as a character in its own. One reference they poke at a lot here that I enjoy is multiple jabs at Terminator 2, Judgment Day. As stated in Scream 2, the first Terminator is iconic. But, in my opinion as well, Terminator 2 is a far superior movie, making it a sequel that's better than the original. Um, And also a movie that develops the story of their final girl from the first film and transforms that character into a strong uh, warrior-like woman in its sequel. Something mirrored here in Scream 2. Again, developing that relationship we have as an audience um, with Sydney, But this time, not so much from a sympathetic stance, but a position of strength and resilience. We're rooting for this woman because we're aware of what she's been through and her strength now. And of course, at the end of Scream 2, you have to love the original Friday the 13th nod at the end with one of the killers being revealed as Billy Loomis's mother. And of course, the Halloween nod by using the name of Loomis. And then 1999 happens. And Columbine happens, and horror movies are hesitant and jump around between studios' media points at the movies for creating psychos, something Scream 1 talked about two years prior, but who's publicizing these stories to the public? Maybe the media? Like in Scream 2? This conversation can take up an entire podcast of its own for the sake of this episode. I'm going to keep it moving. Scream 3, it's good. It's fine. It's good. What I find interesting here is that, again, we jump rankings in media. It goes from news stories to taking place in fucking Hollywood, California the biggest media producers in the world. And Wes Craven went through trouble getting Scream 3 made with, surprise, the Weinsteins behind it. I find it funny now, looking back at what a fucking badass Wes Craven was, uh, not only readdressing the role of women in the final girl in horror, but... Then to make Scream 3, which is essentially drawing back to the story of Sydney's mom and her brief career in Hollywood, years before the Me Too movement took shape. And I think it's funny how this ended up being 
yet another meta layer that we just didn't know at the time and that he was commenting on a group of fucking sleazebags who ran Hollywood. And only years later, a decade or so later, did the story of the Weinsteins really break into the public. In an honorable mention in the climax of Scream 3, when the only killer in this one and what turns out to be the original killer from the first one, or mastermind, or director of all the killings, is revealed to be Sidney's long-lost brother, who, at one point in his big speech about why he's killing and justified and blah blah blah, he starts throwing a fucking temper tantrum like a fucking baby, to which Sidney just snaps back and exclaims... Fucking damn it! Why don't you take some fucking responsibility? Fuck you! Fuck you! And then we wait a decade. Scream 4 was originally intended to be a new trilogy of Scream movies, and for whatever reason, it didn't happen. I remember watching Scream 2 and 3 as a very young kid. With my parents, after they rented it on VHS, I was traumatized as a kid being forced to watch horror movies. I didn't like it at the time. It scarred me, uh, especially those uh, the suggested surreal elements in Scream 3 with Sydney's mom under the bloody sheet. That gave me fucking nightmares. Her nightmares gave me nightmares. But then I grew up, and surprise, I got into horror. I rediscovered the first Scream as a true horror fan in my teens, and it opened the door to so much, as I stated earlier, horror knowledge, history, and just other recommendations. So Scream 4 was my first time properly seeing a new Scream movie, and also a new Scream movie in theaters, and a new Scream movie as a fan of Scream and horror in general. So what happened in the past decade from Scream 3 to Scream 4? Um, after Columbine, there was Scream 3. And after Scream 3, there was 9-11. It's true that art imitates life. And this is most true for horror. You see it in every decade, every generation... The horror movies of the time, or the big horror movies, are they're reflecting what's happening in the public, or in society. And after the first, probably the first, viral video happened, the recordings of the events of 9-11, found footage horror and alien invasion horror came into play. And with the boom of the internet, we also had some disturbing access to war torture videos, which would explain the 2000 Splat Pack's productions of torture porn movies. And in the wake of torture porn's early demise, horror was lost. So where do you go when you're lost? You go back to the beginning. You, where did you start? You go back to where you started. What came first? 
don't you fucking dare go back to Psycho. Don't remake Psycho. That was stupid. But the trend of remakes in that decade between Scream 3 and Scream 4 flurried the box office. And so in another defiance of horror tropes, Wes Craven said, fuck you, I'm making a sequel. This time, again, we see the expansion of media to its possibly highest level, because what also happened in the past 10 years? The internet. Found footage and torture porn is taken into consideration in Scream 4, but it's really the internet and viral videos that take center stage here. But its main quote-unquote final girl is concerned with the original story or remaking it for herself. And then Instagram also come in, comes into play here. And the idea of um, not only viral videos, but internet celebrities. Um, Scream 4 also sees the trio of legacy characters... Sydney, Gale, and Dewey operate as characters who are involved with each other now. We saw at the end of Scream 3 that they were all friends now. They act almost as a single character in this one, whereas before there was some hesitancy. They were uncomfortable at times, but after three movies and a shit ton of trauma experience together, we recognize them all as, for the most part, friends now in Scream 4. Perhaps my favorite character to come out of Scream 4, and here's where we start getting into the segue into my predictions and what I'm wanting from Scream 2022. Here we go. My favorite character is fucking Kirby. Played by Hayden Panettiere. I hope I'm saying that right. While actresses in previous films were aware of the rules of horror after having them fucking mansplained to them, this is the first time we have a female character interject and challenging horror knowledge to a male character. Again, the fucking feminist progression. Not to mention Emma Roberts stabbing, again with that phallic weapon, her co-killer Charlie here, as opposed to Mrs. Loomis's use of the gun to kill her male co-killer in Scream 2. Anyway, back to Kirby in the scene that continues to give me chills every time I watch this movie. In Scream tradition, Ghostface challenges a potential victim with horror knowledge or trivia in order to live or die. And in the last act of Scream 4, with our feminist queen Kirby, after Ghostface gives her an unfair multiple-choice question about the original slasher movie, she insists Ghostface asks her another question. As opposed to Drew Barrymore's tapping out in the first scene of the first movie, again, with the female characters showing confidence, strength, and horror knowledge, Ghostface asks her, to name the remake of the groundbreaking horror movie in which the villain... Halloween, uh, Texas Chainsaw, Dawn of the Dead, The Hills Have Eyes, Amityville Horror, uh, Last House on the Left, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, My Bloody Valentine, When a Stranger Calls Prom Night, Black Christmas, House of Wax, The Fog, uh, Piranha. It's one of those, right? Right? 
what do all these remakes have in common? Besides that they were all made in the past decade at this point in time, or maybe even less than the past decade, what do they all have in common? And that is that none of them even come close to the original, to their original. And I think the chills that comes from this scene comes from this maybe subconscious realization that there was an entire decade or generation at this attempt to create something better than what it was. Or to create something that could never be achieved because of Scream. Scream shattered everything. It pushed everything so far forward that slasher movies could literally never be what they were again. And that's what makes this scene, in my opinion, the best fucking sequence in any Scream sequel ever. Unfortunately, Hayden Panettiere has been mainly inactive since Scream 4. Uh, in part, or all in part, to her recently outspoken um, uh, domestic abuse. Uh, she has sought help and treatment and since in the following years, and so that's why, while her character's fate was left up for debate in Scream 4, I think her return to the big screen would be so absolutely fitting in Scream 2022. And that brings me, I think, to uh, my predictions. What's happened in the past decade since Scream 4? And why is it called Scream and not Scream 5? Thanks, in part again, to Halloween. But this time I'm talking about Halloween from 2018. A recent trend has taken place within the horror genre to ignore the awful fucking remakes and take into consideration the sequels from the original but pay homage and continue the narrative, rightfully so, to the originals. Successfully done, again just recently with Candyman, and even with Child's Play in the recent series Chucky, which leads me to what else has happened in the past decade. Streaming. Smart technology. Face filters. Legalization of gay marriage, a new wave of feminism, Black Lives Matter, and unfortunately, the sequel reboots. Look to pay homage to the originals, but they also look to continue a new narrative, which brings me to my first heartbreaking prediction which I defended for so long, I thought it could never be until recently. I think Sydney is going to die. If we go back to Scream 2, 
Randy talks about the rules to a sequel with Dewey. And in those rules, he prefaces that the rules to a sequel only stay the rules to a sequel if it remains a sequel. Because the rules to a trilogy differ from that to a sequel. But the main rule to a successful franchise is that you never... And he's cut off. He never finished the thought. But what was he about to say? Because we know thus far, for a successful franchise, you never kill off your central character. You don't deviate from that. That's the constant, the thing we care about. However, this is Scream, not Scream 5. And while it is continuing off from Scream 4, it is intended as a reboot and a sequel as well, which is introducing that new reboot idea is the only instance in which it would justify an answer or reason to kill Sidney Prescott. I do have another slightly more uplifting prediction. Not as strong, but it starts off in Scream 2. We see Sydney uh, as a theater major, and in rehearsals one day, there's this introduction of the idea of hallucinations. From the amount of trauma she's gone through, the PTSD, some sort of uh, mental reaction is expected. But then in Scream 3 we see more of this sort of surreal imagery. We see her nightmares. We see this surreal Magritte-esque image of her mother covered with a blanket, covered in blood. And Scream 3 also, at the end, introduces this psycho complex, Hitchcock psycho, that is, with a guy with mommy issues turning out to be the killer and you gotta wonder in the past decade with the re-emergence of gender politics and issues if the creators of scream 5 would again say yo fuck your gender roles to any freudian theory and maybe maybe sydney finally snaps and those slightly suggested hallucinations from briefly in Scream 2, a little more in Scream 3, come back in full swing in Scream 5. And maybe we see Sidney Prescott reemerge as this sort of Norman Bates character and continue this franchise with Sidney as a villain, making her as an iconic antagonist just like Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, Sydney. But if you're listening to this now, it's probably too late for me. I'm probably watching the new Scream as you listen to this, and I'm learning our fate of the franchise firsthand. There's still a chance for you, though. Stay off the internet. Don't read any spoilers. And don't trust anybody.